0: Good morning, Village Church East. Good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor at Village Church. If you're looking for Craig Jarvis, he has much more hair than I do. And he'll be back next week, I believe. Right, John? Feels right. And um, but what we're doing this morning is a three-way pastor swap. So if you are not familiar, we're in the book of First Peter, and there are three churches teaching through the first book of First Peter together: Alliance Bible Church, there in Bartlett; Village Church of Bartlett, where I pastor, and then Pastor Craig with Village Church East. So this morning, Pastor Craig is preaching at Alliance Bible Church in Bartlett. Pastor Alex from Alliance Bible Church is preaching at the Village Church of Arlette, and then me, I'm here with you guys and really excited to open up, open up God's word and so really Craig and I are preaching on almost the same sermons most every single week and it has been so 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 great to be able to plan sermons with him and you may not know this, but like Craig is probably one of the most influential preachers in my life. I listen to him more regularly than I do anyone else. I get to prepare all my sermons with him and every Saturday night for the most part we swap sermons and I steal a bunch of his content. So thank you for letting me be here with you guys. Open up your Bibles, first Peter chapter three. 1 Peter chapter 3. It'll be on the screen as well. And what I want to do is I want to to help set some context, especially if you're new to the book of 1 Peter. And I want to take a moment and train you if that is all right. Um, When God designed and created the world, he created three really amazing institutions. Uh, These are institutions that you will find in every single culture, no matter where you go. The first one is government. Uh, And so God designed the concept of government so that "'Wicked sinners like us could be reined in from our sin. "'You will find wherever governments fail what follows.'" Anarchy, chaos, crazy, etc. So, actually, government, though crazy and broken, is a gift from God. God designed it in such a way to restrain us from our own sin. Institution number two is what we would call religion. And so, God has communicated the right way, the right pathway to a relationship with Him, forgiveness with Him, salvation, purpose, etc. And although there are many, many perversions of this, when God actually created us, and still to this day, there's only one true reality, one true way one true faith or whatever you want to call it, is a gift from God so that humanity is not lost and aimless and wondering, who are you? How do I get forgiveness? How are we in a relationship? What happens when I die? Why am I here? And so God's been very gracious to give us this gift of religion. Number three is the family. The family is a gracious gift from God to give every one of us alive. Uh, An experiential, we'll just say experience, uh, an emotional experience with what it is sort of like for God the Father to love his son, for a husband to love his wife, for a wife to love his husband, you get to experience just a glimpse, a picture of the Trinity's love for each other, Father, Son, and Spirit, God's love for the Son. If you've had a son or a daughter, you understand just a glimpse and a shadow of what it means to be God, and so this is a very precious gift. Now, each one of these gifts have been massively distorted by sin. Now, this is where you can say amen. One, two, three, amen. 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 I mean, how are your taxes, Illinoisans? Going well for you, right? (laughs) Can you say sin? Okay. Um, The audience of 1 Peter is trying to figure out what it means to bring God glory when humans have so radically made a train wreck of these institutions. I mean, these are good things. But the the Christians, the recipients of the book of 1 Peter, they're trying to figure out, how do I live in a world where the government is corrupt, where religions are so corrupt? In fact, uh, most of the religions of the first century were just created by demons who were masquerading themselves, trying to trick the people. Uh, What do I do when the family structure is just crumbling beneath us? How do we live in a way that pleases God? I want to just take a moment. I want to talk to you about the Roman government what it would have been like in the first century to be a follower of Jesus with this as your government. Uh, Nero had complete control. We're talking about late 50s AD, early 60s AD. Nero had overstepped his boundaries. He'd actually deemed himself God. He's beginning to persecute non-compliant religious groups, primarily Jews and Christians. Uh, Corruption could be found in every single corner of the empire. Bribery, rebellions, etc., I mean, this, you thought Illinois was bad. You even thought American politics was semi-frustrating. Like, this is taking it to whole new levels. Let's talk about Roman religion just for a moment. The Roman priests and priestess, priestesses imitated the character of their gods, again, who were nothing more than just demons masquerading as something else. They were deeply sexual, coordinating and sanctioning sexual immorality to gross levels substance abuse, all in the name of connecting with their God. The priests were deeply connected to the state, which means money was coming in and out of the temple system and temple temple structure. You could get a lot of money by being a priest, and it was filled with a ton, a ton of corruption. In fact, what you could count on is if you went to, quote-unquote, church or temple in those days, under the Roman government, you were being exploited and taken advantage of. Let's talk about the Roman family, particularly the urban family, which much of the audience of First Peter is coming from this context. Uh, the women were encouraged to be highly promiscuous, engaging in gross sexual immorality. Prostitution was very normal. Over the top, overcompensating adornment, uh, competition, one woman to another, just very much a competitive feminine culture. Not at all like our culture today, right? In any way, at all. Roman men lived in a hyper, like machismo world where they were permitted and even at times uh, uh, encouraged to multiple levels of prostitution, whether it's children or women or men. Roman husbands were all over the board, but often very sexually promiscuous. Uh, And the wives could do nothing really about it. They had a low view of women, were very harsh to women as a culture. That was an acceptable way of living. The Roman wives, on the other hand, they were treated by and large, like dirt, and they had no option for recourse primarily. Can we just take a moment? Are you grateful, given all the bad stuff going on in America or anywhere right now, that you live in the greatest nation God has ever made? Like, there is no nation where we are freer. Like this is one of the greatest blessings to be here now in all the nations and all the countries that have ever existed. This is, it is a privilege and a joy that we get to live in this place at this time. We should be a very grateful people. And I'm telling you right now, what I just described for you from these first century Christians whom Peter is writing to, there are Christians all over the world going through worse than what those people went through. And here we are. We get to talk about Jesus completely freely. We get to take this sermon and Pastor Craig's sermon and Pastor Alex's and put it on a podcast and publicize it all over the world without any fear of recourse in any way, shape, or form. What, what a blessing. And here's the question that these Christians had to answer. How do I honorably live in a good institution that man has so profoundly messed up? Over the last couple of weeks, uh, Peter and Craig have shared with you one word that Peter repeats over and over and over again. Pop quiz. Who knows the word? Submission. Thank you. Submission. So, I want to show you this word, submission. It comes from a Greek word, which means hupotasso. It's from two derivatives. Hupo, which means under, and tasso, which is a command or a, de- a directive. In the Bible, submission simply means this. Willingly yielding to another's authority or will. Uh, I don't know about you, but there are very few of you who love to willingly yield to another's authority or will. And here's their question. What if the authority, whether it's my parents, whether it's my teachers, my principal, my boss, my government, what if they are taking advantage of me? What if they're sinning against me? What if they're exploiting me? What if they're wrong and I'm right what is the appropriate Christian response? I mean, what would Jesus actually do in this? And and so he has come back to this word over and over again. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, let me just show you how Peter, how much Peter loves this word. Okay. Be hupatasso, for the Lord's sake, to every institution, for this is is the will of God. Do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Well, it starts right here. Hupatasso. Whatever this is, we figure this out. If we want to follow Jesus, this is his will. Servants, be hupotasso to your masters. The best application of this would be um, those of you who have bosses, employees, be hupotasso to them. For to this, hupitasso you have been called. Likewise, <coughs> wives, be hupotasso, to your own husbands. Husbands, or sorry, again he says in verse chapter 3, verse 5, hupotasso again to your own husbands. Likewise, husbands, Hupatasso to your wives. This is the principle of biblical mutual submission um, one to another. And then finally he says, all of you, now here's what, what Peter is assuming. Peter's assuming uh, as he gets to this next section that no matter what he says, what he is telling us to do is so against the grain. It's so against everything that you want to do. It's so against everything that is natural. His assumption is that you're going to try to find every reason why you shouldn't have to submit or subject or defer, you pick the word, to those who are in authority over you and even especially maybe even those who are your peers. And so he's going to go a little bit deeper. he's going to get really, really practical here. Now, if you are new with us, Pastor Craig, what he usually does is at the end of the sermon, he gives a couple so-whats, right? This whole sermon is going to be the so-whats. Sound good? So there'll be no so-whats at the end of the sermon. The so-whats begin right now. So so-what number one, real submission blesses. Here's what he says. Verse eight, finally, all of you, no, ex- no exceptions, any exceptions in this room? If you're a follower of Christ, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now here's my question. Why does Peter give this crew of oppressed, struggling believers these specific exhortations? So let me be honest for a moment. Like If I'm coming to you And I'm just, as a pastor from another church, and I want to look at you and I want to say, I want to just encourage you, Village Church East. Can I tell you to do a couple things that will help you in this place, in this time, in this context? Probably this wouldn't be what I tell you. Are these good things? For sure. But he's telling them these things to counteract challenges and struggles that are happening real time in their community. So, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but um, many uh, studies have been done on the divorce rate of couples who lose a child. And the most conservative studies will say that if a husband and wife lose a child, that minimally, on the lowest end, the, the, the rates of divorce are about 16%. Every couple uh, who loses a child, about 16% of them, some of the studies show much, much higher numbers. I'm trying to be conservative with that number. Why? Why? Because when there is unusual stress in a family or a community, somehow we give ourselves psychological permission to take our pain over here out on those we love the most. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like your husband comes home from a bad day of work. You didn't do it to him, but who does he take it out on? He takes it out on you or the kids or the dog or the tree or something or the wall, right? Right? Ladies, you understand this. Your husband gets home. Uh, It has been a very frustrating day at work. He comes home, and he's like, hey, honey. And you're like, lay off me. I'm starving, right? Like, there's just like a, like, whoa, I didn't do anything to you. Kids, you understand this. You come home from a bad day at work, or a bad day at work, yeah. (laughs) Child labor. You come home from a bad day at school. Terrible day. Probably a lot of frustrating things happen. And who's the first person you see? Your mom or your dad, and who do you take it out on? There's a psychological principle here that when communities especially op- oppressed communities experience ongoing and, and uh, very deep stress, uh, what they end up doing is they end up turning on one another instead of standing with one another. And intuitively you know this. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I've got a community of oppressed, struggling people. And Peter knows the struggle is going to get worse and worse and worse as time goes on. And so he looks at them and he says this, I want you to have unity of of mind. This is a counterpunch to their tendency to blame. So I'll give you an example. Um, When you'd imagine you're in this community and and one of your uh, best friends was killed because they found out they were a Christian. They found out they were a Christian because you said something. And here's what they say. If you would have kept your mouth shut, they never would have taken her. Why didn't you fight back? You just stood there as they mocked you. Go back in there and get your job back. I mean, you can imagine when when there is an immeasurable amount of stress, whether it's your family or your community, one of the first things we start to do is to blame other people, even if it's not even their fault. And he says, listen, you need to have unity of mind because the stress of this context is going to make you want to turn on each other. You're not even going to know you're doing it. It's just a psychological condition inside of the broken human being. Watch out. This is an encouragement to families and couples and kids and anybody who lives in a tight-knit community. When things are stressed, they aren't your enemy. They're not your enemy. Sympathy. The counterpunch to sympathy is a lack of empathy. And here's what they're doing. They're not really putting themselves in the shoes of other people. When things are hard and difficult, you think about who? Them or you? You. And he says, take yourself out of your shoes for a moment and look at how hard their life is. Sympathize with them. Understand what they're going through. And so rather than blaming them, just take a moment and understand how terribly, terribly difficult it is what they're going through. Brotherly love. This is a counterpunch to the broken relationships that are beginning to emerge in this oppressed, struggling community. Have a tender heart. As a community experiences oppression, as they experience difficulty together, as they begin blaming each other, hard hearts grow toward one another. And Peter says, don't let your heart grow hard to them. This is not my will for you. It's not God's will for you. He says, you have a humble mind. I know the tendency for you to be prideful, to think more highly of yourself. Well, I wouldn't have done that if I was in that circumstance. Why didn't you just do it this way? That's all out of a root of pride. And so he says, all of you, let's just talk about real submission. Let's get nitty gritty. You have to fight for these things. Because sin in you is going to propel you to do the opposite. Anybody see this in your own lives? And so that's why these encouragements are so important to these people. And I want you to get this. The people of God, they shine the brightest when we're treated like dirt. This is where the Holy Spirit begins to convict us, and we don't do the natural impulses. We actually do the opposite as believers, and then what happens is unbelievers see that we are unlike any other group of people. We have the ability to go counter our flesh. And inevitably, if you do this long enough, if you resist the flesh long enough, inevitably, people are going to notice and they're going to say something because your life is so counter the impulse of everyone else. Verse 9 says this, he goes on, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, on the contrary, bless to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing i want to i want to ask you a couple questions this is now an interactive time if you get the answer wrong it's 100 percent okay humor me for just a moment what is the opposite of hatred love wonderful is neutrality the opposite of hatred love is Okay. here, here we're gonna go a little more difficult what is the opposite of a negative 10 positive 10 right right is zero the opposite no what is the opposite of evil good thank you not neutrality right the opposite of reviling is not passivity but it's blessing i want to put this on the screen so you can just see this because i want to talk to you about this i think it should be on there there it is so um, earlier this week, I had a meeting with Pastor Alex, and we were talking about our sermon because we're both preaching on the same things. We'd already gone through our sermon prep, and, and Pastor Alex said this. And we're at lunch, and I stopped and said, man, that is pure gold. So I go into my phone, I go into my note, and I write this down. So um, we go off, we have our meeting, things happen. I leave the meeting, and a series of events happen where um, i was personally reviled now here's the catch the person reviling me didn't know that i knew and so i'm in a quandary because i'm wrestling through so do i call the person up do i confront them do i give them the benefit of the doubt i had a hunch it was happening but unfortunately like yeah, you know, and so it's interesting that in this moment I've got one note on my phone, and this is what it says. Two hours later, I'm in a circumstance, and here's what I want to do. I want to call them. I'm hurt, and if my hurt isn't, we'll just say given to the Lord quickly. What does hurt turn into very quickly? Anger, and then that anger, when it's not under control, becomes bitterness, and that bitterness becomes reviling. Right? I mean, I'm watching the whole thing go inside of me and I'm genuinely frustrated, and I'm trying to stay in the hurt place because I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be bitter. Those are ugly emotions. Like, I'm not my best when I'm there, and so I'm trying to just lean into the hurt and say, all right, it's objectively a hurt thing. I, I kind of knew it was happening, but I got confirmation, and I wasn't seeking the confirmation, but it was just there, and I couldn't, I couldn't unsee it, you know? And so um, I looked back at this, and uh, I, I thought to myself, all right, Clearly, Lord, I'm going to stand in front of your people. I'm going to open up your word. And you have given me this sentence just hours before I found out I was reviled. What are you going to do? Are you going to be the biggest hypocrite on the planet? And so against every grain in my body, against everything, I had a unique unique opportunity to not just have a conversation with this person generally, but I had the opportunity to sit down with them. Now, it's interesting. I'm going to be honest. I'm still thinking through the right way to handle everything. Um, I didn't talk about this. I actually got them a gift. Uh, it was a pretty thoughtful gift for them. I gave them the gift, and I spoke words of hope and encouragement and love and kindness over them. It was about a half hour, 45 minute time together. I left, and can I just tell you what happened to my heart? It was like all the hurt just melted. There's something, and I, and I wish I could like quantify it in an equation for you, but I can't. But there was something about blessing my reviler that melted my heart to them. Like, even right now, um, I've seen the person three or four times since then. Um, Just random week, our paths just happened to cross over and over again. And I can look at you and say, like, right now, I mean, next week might be a different story, but right now, my heart is so tender and so soft to that person. Um, I found myself praying for that person. By the way, like, when I'm hurt, it takes me a long time to really get to that point where I'm, like, excitedly praying for that person. And I found that apparently Jesus knows what he's talking about. That he knows that when the people of God are reviled, that if we we respond in reviling, that apparently it corrupts our own soul and we are just not who Jesus has made us to be. And so this is life. I mean, think about the person that has reviled you, slandered you, spoken negatively to you, made your life incredibly, profoundly difficult. And what do you want? Justice. Vengeance. Vengeance harsh words, I get it, I get it. The opposite of reviling, it's not passivity, but it's blessing. So when we're treated poorly, we have to answer a really important question, and we have to answer this quickly, and the question is, what do I really want? I'll give you three options. Option number one is vengeance. When I was reviled, I wanted vengeance. I wanted to actually have the conversation that would confront the person catch them and then make them apologize like why i wanted that i don't know but that was my version of vengeance it wasn't good like that's really not i think that's just not my heart for the person but in that moment that's what i wanted Uh, i'm tempted often to another pathway which is self-preservation and the way to the pathway to self-preservation is paved through passivity that's a lot of peas passivity I'm not going to call them out. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to go mute. I'm going to go quiet. Passivity is neutral. The opposite of a positive 10 is not neutral. The opposite of hate is not neutrality. The opposite of reviling is not passivity. And I have to ask myself, what do I really want? Or do I want their transformation? And as I seek their transformation, guess who is also transformed? Me. So if you want vengeance, here's what you do revile. If you want self-preservation, be passive. If you want transformation, bless. Now, do you understand when you are dealing with a Roman government where persecution is amping up, and I want you to hear me, Many of First Peter's audience were kicked out of their homes in Rome. All of their money was taken. Their possession was taken. Their homes were taken. They were what's called exiled. They were kicked out into what is now modern-day Turkey, into a new place, new culture, new people, new land. And the only thing that they had in common with anybody was trust in Jesus Christ. And now they're living with many of these people. And this is, a, I mean, you can imagine the bitterness. And so a Roman guard, finally, you're in Turkey. Roman guards were there. A Roman guard comes up to you, says something to you. Do you want to have attitude with that Roman guard? You better believe it. Because that Roman guard represents an entire institution of oppression that has ruined your life and taken everything away from you. And Peter says, I get it. I get I get it. First of all, you're not going to change the institution, right? But you have a dude in front of you who represents everything that is oppressed to you. Bless him. Bless him. Verse 10 goes on. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This is that impulse in you to revile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. My wife is a professional counselor, and she taught me this really great phrase. I use it all the time. We'll sit with a couple, and of course, when you're in counseling, uh, they're there because their life is falling apart to one degree or another most often, uh, and we look at them, and we just say, okay, what decisions have you made to get to this place? And they'll start talking about the different decisions that they've made, et cetera, and we just tell them this. This is like probably the most frequent piece of feedback we give in counseling. Do the opposite. <laughs> Because if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you got. Right? And and I get it. Like, what you've been doing is the path of least resistance. It's the easiest thing for you. It's what you know. It's your habits. It's your pattern. It's natural. I get it. But if you want a different outcome, then you're going to have to do the opposite. And because this got you into bad things, the opposite is not neutrality. The opposite is actually doing something very different, the counter to it. You're spending all your money and you're in massive debt. Now it's time to spend very little money and save a lot. There are a lot of things that you can do, but here's what he's saying. Do the opposite. I get all the impulses in you. I get, I get these people. I get your wife drives you nuts. I get your husband is driving you crazy. I get that your kids are just driving you nuts and your parents or whatever. But I'm telling you that if, if you want transformation reviling will never get it. Here's a little funny thing. I think whenever I see kids disobey their parents, it doesn't matter what age they are, if you're in high school and you're just being really mean to your mom and dad or if you're like seven years old and you're just being sassy or whatever it is, I think to myself, that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen because if you really wanted freedom, if you really wanted more opportunity, if you really wanted respect, if you really wanted them to go easy on you, The pathway to that is blessing your parents and not reviling them. In fact, every time you revile, you make pathway to freedom, which is what most kids really want, longer and longer and harder and harder. It doesn't even make sense. But as a kid, I I understood this. I was so rebellious against my parents. I gave my mom and dad so much attitude. And did it ever get me more freedom? No, it didn't. Actually, it made my relationship worse. It made me unhappier. It made me more bitter And it's interesting. I wish somebody would have sat down with me other than my mom and dad when I was in like eighth grade or 10th grade or 12th grade or 22 and said, Michael, do the opposite. And if you really want transformation in them, in you, a better relationship, more life, like the pathway you're taking isn't getting you very far. And so Peter's like, listen, I get all your impulses. I see it. I'm you, right? They killed Jesus, my savior and my God. I sat there and watched it. You don't think I want to have some words with these people? You don't think I understand? Like, Peter isn't some innocent bystander who's just like, I can't relate. I mean, I'm just giving you some really good advice from from a distance. Like, if anybody is gonna tell you to bless those who revile you and have weight to their words, it's gonna be Peter himself. Where did he ever get this crazy idea from? I don't know, Jesus? Look at what Jesus says. You've heard it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Does that feel good, by the way? Someone punches you, what do you want to do? Punch back. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anybody would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Real submission blesses. And this real submission is the most effective way. It's the most powerful tool that you have to see real transformation in the people around you. So what number two? Real submission trusts. Peter goes on. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. By the way, who are the righteous here? I want to just be very clear. It's not really good people. First of all, it's people who have trusted in Jesus who are practicing hupatasso, who are practicing blessing those who revile them, who are practicing submission. Here's what he says. The eyes of the Lord. This is, a, this is a, a, a symbol of affection, of attention, of love. He's watching you, and not in a creepy way, but in a way that he's like, how are you doing? How can I help you? What do you need? He goes on and says, his ears are open to their prayer. Any any of you feel like God doesn't hear your prayers sometimes? Practice submission and the ears of the Lord open to your prayers in a way they never have before. Try it. Make this a part of your life. Bless, 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 and trust the Lord as you bless those who revile you. It says, but... The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who are the ones that do evil? I'm going to tell you. I want you to hear me. It's not just those who revile. It is those who claim the name of Jesus and revile in return. The face of the Lord is against you. I had an option earlier this week with my reviler. Bless and have the Lord lean into me and answer my prayer for personal transformation and transformation in that person, or revile and return and have the Lord turn his face away from me, ignore my prayers, and give me over to bitterness. That was what was at stake in me this week. I have a hunch that's that's at stake in many of you right now. Real submission, it trusts, The Lord is saying this, I see you, I hear you. I love, love, love what you're doing. When you pray in this posture, it just makes everything in me want to give you everything you're asking for. I just want to hear you. It is precious in my sight. That's what he says earlier. This is the will of God. You were called to this is what he says in chapter two. This is what we do. We are just a different group of weirdos that when somebody picks a fight with you, you just stand there and you say, you want the other cheat too? You want this one? And we show unbelievable power in our self-control, not just for neutrality, but in for blessing. We show a confidence in God. It was very hard for me to bless this person this week. I had to trust that the Lord's way would be better than my way. Because nothing in me wanted to believe it would be. Because what my flesh wanted was immediate satisfaction through reviling in return. Verse 13, it says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And if you're reading this, you'll probably laugh out loud because you're like, I don't know, Rome? <laughs> they just were pretty good people and they kicked us out. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, even if you submit, even if you defer, even if you bless those who revile you, and you still suffer for righteousness sakes, you will be blessed. Because you will be transformed from the inside out. And God will let no act of submission, real submission, go unrewarded, whether here, but especially in heaven. Like I think when I get to heaven, I'm going to look back and I'm going to kick myself for every single time I took vengeance because God would have been like, here's another blessing. You just forsook it, you know? And every single person who perseveres when somebody oppresses you and you don't revile in return but bless, the Lord will pay you back. Hear me. You'll never, ever regret it. Even if right now there's a little bit of suffering, even if right now it's a little bit difficult, when you get to heaven, it will all be 100% worth it. Real submission trust Jesus' way and entrust Jesus with the outcome. So what number three? Real submission risks. Peter's just going to amp this up. Bless those who revalue. Trust God for the outcome. And there's going to be some risks you're just going to have to take. Here's what he says. Verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Meaning this. Don't be more afraid of a Roman guard or Caesar than you are Jesus Christ. I mean, he's the king of kings, the lord of lords. Like, he, he snaps his fingers and he kills anybody he wants. Like, this is the guy you should be afraid of. So, in your heart... Don't let your greatest fear be Nero. In your heart, be the most afraid in a good way of Jesus Christ. Honor him as Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anybody. I want to just highlight this. Anybody. Is there an exception here? Anyone? No. Okay, good. Who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have that is in you, yet do this, do it with gentleness and respect. Here is what Peter is expecting. Peter's expecting that when you have revilers who are reviling, oppressors who are oppressing, and you respond with blessing, inevitably or eventually, they're going to look at you and say, what is wrong with you? You are so weird. Like, I make fun of you constantly, and you're not at all upset. And you're like, yeah, I don't report to you. (laughs) I report to Jesus. He'll pay me back for it. It's cool. What What is going on with you? Now, you might be tempted to say, you do realize you're going to burn in hell for all of eternity, right? You do realize God's going to get you back for all of this. I've generally found that's not the most effective way to get people to listen to the gospel. Go for it. See how it goes. Um, Here's what he says. Inevitably, when you do this, the people who revile you are going to ask you in some way about this. And you're going to have to take a big risk. You're going to have to talk to them about Jesus. Jesus. Imagine a bully at school, just a punk, picks on you, and you bless him. Uh, maybe you find something he loves. This is, this is so funny and stupid and backwards. I think it's hilarious, right? You know, the kid loves Snickers. So you could buy him like a pack of Snickers and be like, hey, man, like, thought of you. Hope you have a great day. See ya." What? <laughs> you're stealing all of his control now, right? So eventually this kid's going to be like, what's up with you, man? And you're be like, uh, I don't know. I just wanted to do it. No, that's not what you say. You say, dude, Jesus is my savior. He did this. I know you're a jerk to me. I love you. He loves you. If you want to talk more, let me know. Out. <laughs> right? Or something. I don't know. you got to figure out your own way to say that. But here's what he's saying. I get that when you're an oppressor, oppressee reviler, revile relationship, it takes a lot of guts when this comes up, when the Lord opens up this moment in this conversation for you to actually speak why you're blessing. But here, here's the deal let's work backwards. You're not going to be in the risky situation to talk about Jesus until you trust the Lord enough to bless the people that are reviling you. This all starts with the blessing, but if you're going to do that, inevitably the conversation is going to happen. So if you're there, seize the moment. Be super, super nice. Can I just talk to you guys for a minute? You make everyone else's life so difficult when you're mean. Because what you do for many people is you might be the only Christian that they know. And when you're a jerk, you make all of us look like jerks. Because oftentimes when you know one Christian, people judge all Christians by that one. It's like if you know one Muslim and they're a terrible human, you're going to judge all Muslims by the one. This is just human nature. You meet a pastor and he treats you like dirt, you're going to be hesitant and reticent of all pastors. The human nature is that we take one bad experience and we categorize an entire group and say they all must be like that. Understand that non-Christians do this, Christians do this, but the last thing we need is in these moments of your reviling is for you to be a jerk. Please don't do it because it actually will not get you anywhere. The power is not in being a jerk. Actually, the power of the gospel given with gentleness and respect is way, 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 way more potent than the power of the gospel with you being a jerk as you give it. Here's a couple things that you can do. I'll give you three, very simple. You decide to bless your reviler. They ask you why. Don't talk about them. Just talk about you. Tell tell your story. Can you just tell you uh, I was struggling. I was living a life that I wasn't proud of. Um, I went to Village Church East one day, and and the Pastor talked about trusting Christ for forgiveness, and I did, and it was the best decision I ever made in my entire life. Resist condemnation. It's just not needed in that moment. If somebody opens that door, the gentleness and respect, tell your story. Focus on how God saved you. The Holy Spirit can draw the connection. Well, if he did it for him, he could do it for you. Like we're tempted to make all the connections for them. Um, don't be afraid to tell them what you believe. So let me, let me explain how this works. So um, there was a, a Muslim that I was interacting with and he and he said, so what do you believe? And I said, can I just tell you like my story? And he said, yeah. I said, I grew up in a world where um, I would learned that good people go to heaven. And they even taught this in the name of Jesus and the Bible. But the more I read the Bible, I was like, oh, that's so not true. And, and um, it became clear to me that what the Bible told was a different story. And the story was true. And so I believed that Jesus Christ was God and that he died on the cross for my sins. Um, I read the Bible and I learned that salvation isn't for good people it's for people who ask for forgiveness Um, i learned that when i read the bible that um, jesus died on the cross of my sins and he rose again from the dead i learned that anybody who trusts in christ can have forgiveness of sins do you see the difference in telling my story that there's actually we've just found more responsiveness in this culture in this time as you tell your story because in a culture of we'll just say like i don't want to be a bigot they're afraid to like, speak negatively against your story. Where people are going to get the most upset with you is you start pointing the finger at them. That's where things get really intense. Start with your story. Tell the story about how God saved you. Tell the story about how you believed in the gospel. And then let's see where the conversation goes. And if they say, do I need to believe that to be saved? And your answer is yes. God offers it to anybody who would trust in Christ. Focus on the love of Christ for you. Focus on the forgiveness of sins you don't have to be prepared with the best gospel presentation in the world. You don't have to put them on the spot. Tell your story, and in your story, the gospel will be apparently present. He says in verse 16, having a good conscience. The only way to have a good conscience is to be hopitaso when you're reviled. Here's what he says. Have a good conscience so that when you're slandered or reviled, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they might be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good than it should be God's will if that should be God's will then for doing evil. Hupataso. Bless, bless, reviled, bless, reviled, bless. All right. We're going to shift gears. Because what Peter does, which is wonderful, is Peter draws our attention to Jesus. Because who did hupotasso perfectly? Jesus did. I mean, his entire life in ministry was hupotasso, submission, deference, to the point where he willingly went to the cross and let Romans kill him. That's how uh, how much he lived this. So here's what Peter does. Peter begins to um, uh, encourage them with Jesus, but then he says some really, really weird things that if I don't talk about them, you're going to be like, what was that? So here's what I want to do. We're going to, we're going to end this sermon, and I'm going to go through this last part, and I want to answer three questions um, that Peter brings up that you're going to be asking if, you know, you'll see. He says this, for Christ, verse 18, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Do you see that? The one reviled blesses the unrighteous for the righteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Anybody know who the spirits in prison are? <laughs> like what a weird phrase, just a drop, right? And so I could just read through this, but you're going to go to your community groups and you're going to be like, what a, like, there's all these strange phrases in here. There are, there are actually a couple options for the spirits in prison. One, um, some people have surmised that it's Old Testament saints. It's not the right answer, by the way. Uh, number two, Are demons in general. So, that the idea is that he went um, to hell or wherever the demons were at this time and he proclaimed a message of victory to them. And number three is he proclaimed to the Nephilim, which we're not going to go into this, but if you ever just want like a trippy place to study, uh, look up the word Nephilim in the book of Genesis. Very interesting. Um, But the Nephilim were a class of demons who were the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. So evil and vile, in fact. That of all the demons, um, right around the time of the flood, that God took these ones and put them in prison or in hell early so they could not terrorize the earth. So there's a whole bunch of demons around, right? But the worst of the worst of the worst that God himself shackled in some spiritual prison so they could not antagonize the rest of humanity. So who are the spirits in prison? Probably it's going to be two and most likely, most specifically, three. Look what happens in verse um, uh, 20, as it goes on. It says, "...because they, whoever he's preaching to, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, here's what you can do. Go to your community groups and just have a good old debate on it. Go study. Get all the knowledge you can. Look up the Nephilim. It's a really trippy subject. Don't let it discourage you, It's just very interesting, and there's a lot of really dumb ideas around that, FYI. Number two, why did Jesus proclaim to the spirits in prison? Like, what is the point of going here? Is it just to, like, rub it in? And the answer is yes, <laughs> which I love. Look at Colossians 2 says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. This is Jesus on the cross, to the cross and resurrection. He is putting all of the evil forces to utter and public shame. And here's what it says, by triumphing over them in him. So in the first century, what would happen, a general would come back from war and he would take the defeated generals um, of the opposing army behind him and they would mock him and there would be a big parade throughout the city and it would just be uh, be a time to just shame and publicly mock these people right? And so here's what he's doing. Paul is saying in Colossians, he's saying, this is what Jesus did, except he went down to the spirits in prison and he said, you lose. You're the worst of the worst. You try to take all of humanity down and through my shed blood and resurrection, all of them are going to be saved who trust in Jesus Christ. Ah, look at you. Oh, you're in prison. There's nothing you can do about it. Bam. Like that's what he did. Number three. Which baptism saves us? What? All right, look what he says. And then Peter just, he's like, he's on this, I don't know, Peter's a little erratic sometimes, and I appreciate it, but here he goes. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Could we just pause? Some of you grew up in a world where you were taught that water baptism saves you. Just wait, just wait, hold that thought. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So which baptism saves us? Water baptism? No. Do you see the words? Not as a removal of dirt from the body. The New Testament wants you to know this. When you get baptized, it does not save you. That Your problem, it's a spiritual problem. Water can't fix a spiritual problem. Okay? And so like, that is not the point of water baptism. Water baptism is an external sign or symbol of an internal reality. There's a different kind of cleansing or baptism that you need, and that is a spirit baptism that only ever happens when you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. When you do that, he gives you his Holy Spirit, and he cleanses you from your sins, and he washes your sins away. Here's what he says. Uh, baptism now saves you, It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Cleanse me, clear me. What are you appealing to? You're appealing to Jesus Christ on the cross, resurrected from the dead. So if you read this and you're like, wait a minute, baptism saves me? No. Spirit baptism through faith in Christ, it's the spirit that cleanses you when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And here's how it ends. Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities and powers having been hupotasso to him. Who, who is this Jesus to demand that we trust him and him alone for salvation? Well, if you talk to the greatest forces, the most evil, powerful forces of this world, even they hupotasso ultimately to Jesus. There is none greater, there's none bigger, there's none stronger. And so in your life, when you die, there will only be one judge and God to face, and that is going to be Jesus Christ because there is none greater than him. None greater. And so the application for all the Christians is very simple. Bless, 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 bless those who revile you. There is power, transformational power for you and for them in this And then, for any of Peter's audience who are listening to this and they have yet to trust in Christ, he would say, Listen, there is no one more powerful. You must be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You must be. And so, I want to just take a moment with each of you here. And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you know that. You've made that decision. You've received the Holy Spirit. You are not perfect. You struggle. But the Spirit is in you, and He's. Challenging you and and, and and encouraging you and convicting you. But I want to ask the rest of you this question. Have I personally trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins? Have I personally made the decision to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins? Let me tell you what happens in church. You're a third-generation Christian, your mom went to church, your grandma went to church, your great grandma went to church. You're a pretty good person comparatively to other people and you conclude this. I call myself a Christian. God loves everybody. My parents are Christians. I'm going to be fine. And I have good news for you. That's not the way it works. Every individual must come before God on his or her own terms and make a personal decision to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone. No one can do that for you you must make the decision to come to Jesus and trust in him for you. You can't go get baptized and have water baptism cleanse your sins. Your grandma's faith cannot cleanse your sins. Your faith in Jesus Christ, crucified for your sins and resurrected, is the only way you will ever, ever have forgiveness of sins. So I want to just ask you a question. Would you today, if you have never trusted in Christ, would you do that? You do not have to raise your hand. I'm not going to have an altar call. I'm not going to make you stand up. Go before the Lord right now if you never have. Tell him you trust him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Yes. Ask him to save you. There's no secret formula. The Lord knows faith, and it comes out in so many different words, but he knows it when he sees it. And if you want to trust in Christ, here's what I ask you to do talk to him, ask him to save you, ask him to forgive you. And then my ask is very simple Would you come let myself or Brent? or John, or one of the leaders at the church, or Chris, or Megan, or one of the musicians, would you just come out to us and say, I made a decision today for the first time to trust in Jesus Christ. And we would love to pray with you. We'd love to encourage you. We'd love to bless you. We'd love to help you take a next step. Mostly we want to celebrate with you today that today might be the first day of eternity being saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So what I want to do right now is I want to pray for you. And, uh, and then uh, as I'm done here, uh, Chris is going to come up and he's going to lead us in communion. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and I want to just say thank you for Jesus. Humanity has tried to get to heaven by being good. We've tried to get to heaven by building towers. We've tried to get to heaven by building false religions and perverting everything, but our sin just always catches up with us. You are good and you are holy and you are perfect. You are also loving, and you have given every one of us in this room a lifeboat, an ark. Thank you for giving us, Jesus, that we can get in the boat and be saved from hell, from our own sins. Thank you for being so gracious. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us this message. We just are very grateful. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room right now who is trying to figure out whether or not they're going to trust in you, would you just... Would you just show them who Jesus really is and would you give them the courage to place their faith in you maybe for the first time? Would you also give them the courage to to say something to somebody? Lord, when we get to heaven, we're gonna look back on this life and all the suffering and the reviling and the oppression and we are gonna be so grateful for knowing you, for your Holy Spirit and for your help. And Lord, one day we're gonna get to heaven and we're gonna see that it has all been worth it. To honor and to serve and to live for Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost is here. So, God, we love you. We're grateful now as we come to this communion table. Would we you well up gratitude inside of us in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen.